welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're looking back to one of the highlights from the 56th New York Film Festival. During NYFF, our projections section presents an international selection of film and video work that expands upon our notions of what the moving image can do and be. Last year's opening night selection was Diamantino, a dazzlingly original feature about a chiseled football star who flees the public eye. From longtime collaborators Daniel Schmidt and Gabriel Abrantes, Diamantino is a perversely pleasurable send-up of Brexit, genetic science, and the ongoing refugee crisis. The film opens in select theaters this weekend. Schmidt and Abrantes joined Projection's co-programmer Ailey Nash at NYFF for a Q&A after the screening. Let's go to that now. start with Diamantino, the character of Diamantino. He's kind of this archetypal, naive, um, kind of a classic Candide-like character who I think I've heard you guys refer to him as a Portuguese uh, Forrest Gump. Um, can you tell us a bit about how this character came to be, how you kind of settled on having a sports figure and a, a, like a football star as the center of the film and and how all these different elements came together. Um, sure, my answers are sometimes long, but I'll, I'll begin. Uh, I think Gabe and I are, are very fascinated with, with pop culture, and, and that's why we got into movies. We, you know, like getting to, to speak the language and not just read it or, or hear it. Um, and, and so all the movies before have, have had this sort of like attempt at, at, at some sort of Hollywood imagery or playing with that. But with this movie, we want to look a little bit more at the present. The past ones had been sort of set more in the past. And want to look at the present moment and all of the sort of social pressures and uh, the sort of insanity and, and 24-hour viral violence and, and, and chaos of, of, of 2018. Um, and we thought, well, what, what character could somehow be the sort of mythical center of a fairy tale that sort of flattens and, and looks at all of those things. And we thought, well, it's going to be a celebrity. They're at the intersection. They're constantly being, they're exploiting, and also they're being exploited by all these different forces. Like Kim Kardashian is in the White House with a former reality TV star. You know, it's like, but we wanted to make the film have something of a, a character that was at odds with those or has an ambiguous or open relationship to, to this world or a naive relationship. So we started thinking of not such a, an easy sort of satire as, as, as Kim, though she has her qualities. Um, and um, we started looking around at, at, at other uh, potential people. And we, we, both Gabriel and I came across this text by David Foster Wallace, once called uh, How Roger Federer uh, no, I'm, I'm conflating the two, but that's what the movie does. Uh, one's called Roger Federer as Religious Experience, which is about um, the uh, basically sports as the last sort of transcendental um, human achievement, like measurable, uh, 
almost godlike achievement now that art has become sort of conceptual and religion is dying in certain parts of the world. Um, and so he talks about the spectacle and the beauty of watching Federer play. And then he has a second text called How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, which is about a, a tennis prodigy um, who he adored and her career was maligned by a car incident and he wanted to read her tell-all, what she wrote. He reads it, it's completely just innocuous, vapid, like there's no I in team. You know, just there's no, there's no there's no genius. He wanted to know what the genius was of behind her, and there's no genius. So he's talking about these two different things, which is the 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 um, the sort of splendor and transcendence that art can provide, and then the nature that it, at least his thesis is that for some athletes, the genius must be a total emptiness of the mind. So we took those two texts, and we were also thinking about this naive character. And then I guess the third element was locating it in Portugal, where Gabe's from, where we've worked before. We were interested in that culture, as well as this sort of Euro crisis and the refugee crisis. And so these things started to come together into Diamantino, the character. And then I think the final part, I guess I'll let you speak a little bit, is, is the actor. So. Yeah, um, as soon as we knew we wanted to shoot in Lisbon, uh, we knew we wanted to work with Carlotto. I had worked with him, I guess, three times before. And maybe we'll just mention that he's kind of well known for his roles in um, Miguel Gomez's films in Portugal. Yeah, he's in this film Taboo as, as one of the main characters and also in uh, Gomez's most recent film. He has a character which is a very small side character, but Paddleman which is like a guy who like does that like paddle surfboard thing. He's also shirtless almost the And he's shirtless the entire time. And it's uh it's one of his best best roles. Um but so we absolutely we knew that we wanted to work with him and as soon as we thought of Carlotto and like a huge celebrity icon in Portugal, we we're like, okay, he's gonna be this like genius soccer player who's genius but not so genius. And so that came quite quick, yeah. And um yeah, you've talked about this kind of um, openness, this kind of Zen moment where he enters into this internal space on the field, and this is portrayed by the fluffy puppies. How did how did that happen? Yeah, we wanted to like come up with like a stupid way to signify a sort of autistic trance state which uh, is this text that Daniel was talking about, how Tracy Austin spoke, uh, uh, broke my heart, which is like somebody who's doing something perfectly, like playing tennis amazingly or playing soccer amazingly, to such an extent that like uh, we could consider it genius, but that the secret to that is like an a empty brain, like a 10% brain function or whatever. And so we're thinking, what are good visual images for this? And originally, I, I had suggested, uh, I think, piglets, right? No, that was my idea. Oh, that was Daniel's idea. <laughs> and then we, we, we coalesced on, on puppies. And we originally, I, when I said puppies, I thought like golden retriever puppies. But then like the production brought these Pekingese puppies, which I think really like took the idea to another level, which is very nice. And the guy, he has like... 
I get he had like 12 to 20 Pekingese. Oh, yeah, I think he had like two dozen. But these were the four or five that you see in sort of recurring roles are the, are the few that would m move at all. They were basically <laughs> sort of stationary, like Ottomans. Uh, <laughs> and shooting them in slow motion like did them no <laughs> service. <laughs> and they had like beautiful names like uh, Betty and Queen Queen. Bacchus. And Bacchus. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, was, it was quite, and like they're getting perfumed during the whole shoot, although like we don't see that or smell that, I guess. But it was. It comes through. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you, yeah, the two of you've worked together a lot in the past and you've often used satire and humor in your works to kind of address political ideas. Your previous works dealt a lot with um, colonialism and here we're you know, thinking about a lot of um, topical issues like you've mentioned. Can you kind of talk about your approach to humor in addressing these things? I think, I don't know, there's this film, uh, Solvent's Travels, which is like a comedy director who like wants to give up on comedy and make like a hard-hitting drama to talk about the economic crisis in the States. And his producer at the beginning of the film is like, well, what do you know about poverty? And he's like, you're absolutely right. So he comes up with this like idea of dressing up like a beggar uh, to go learn how difficult it is. And throughout his travels, he learns that uh, actually making a hard-hitting drama might not be so effective politically and that making a comedy is actually uh, more effective. And I think we're influenced by films like this. I mean, this film, it's like a sort of like knock you on the head kind of moral. But um, like To Be or Not To Be was a huge influence on us. And it's actually a film that was like panned horribly in the New York Times when it came out, um, which is incredible. Like thinking of that now, like uh, uh, a film that's like an anti-Nazi comedy during the war that's like not understood as like actually an in intelligent film. But I don't know, I mean, some people think that jokes are the best way to talk about the most profound problems and I think both of us agree with that. So that's sort of why we attack some of these things that I think as, as stupidly as we attack them, uh, we feel them as I think everybody in this room feels a lot of these things. Uh, like uh, yeah, the rise of like the extreme right in Europe and the States or whatever. And the way that we try to deal with it, I mean, it's like comedy. It's, and it's I think what a lot of people in this room probably consume is comedy uh, relating to these political topics. And we try to just put our own voice into that comedy in some way. I think there's also like a, like a, I don't know, an avoidance. I mean, I don't know if the movie's that funny, but there's an avoidance of tr not trying to do just comedy or drama or, or fit into those types of categories. And often some of the subject matter that we touch on in the film is dealt with in a very sort of dramatic or very sentimental way. And I think sometimes that can be really great. And I, sometimes there's also this onus of is this art useful and it can be useful but I, I think we can also find it to be somewhat limiting so we try to deal with the subject matter in a more free way which is also uh, problematic at times but uh, hopefully that like echoes a little bit of the the sort of central character and 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 the sort of instability that having 
someone with that degree of, I guess, visibility, but also just naivete brings to these, these other forces? I think something that's really distinctive about your works is the way that it kind of breaks these boundaries between genre and conventions of genre and also mixes different forms of image production. You know, and this, this work is mostly shot on film, but you bring in CGI and stock images and drone footage, and you're really bringing so many different kind of image worlds and you know, moving, making modes together. And, you know, this is something we've seen in your previous shorts. Um, and, you know, it's really kind of brought to the next level with this film. Um, but could you talk a bit about why that type of, that mode of working has been so important to you? Mm, well, I think, I, I, I think because the way that Gabriel and I have worked, which is often with Again, going back to the first thing I said, which was a, an aspiration or an attention towards like Hollywood image, imagery, like we really like watching the the coffee shop movies, but like our our desire is to do something that like is goes back to the sort of like even the early days of cinema, like the attractions, like a house on fire or a train coming into the station or that kind of stuff, and 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 now today like meme culture or whatever that this is something that or Transformers Five or whatever. Uh, really appeals to us, and, and we're really interested in that, in that kind of imagery. But of course, our talent and our whatever other things we lack don't afford us that $250 million budget. So as we try to work with that kind of imagery, um, it, it, it creates all these sorts of shorthands that we need to take, and that often the different uh, types of imagery that go into the film almost come first from a sort of like utilitarian aspect. Like we used to dub all our films and that became a creative choice, but it started as a some, sort of just like a need. Now we have the money to do, what's it called? Live recording, not dubbing. And, and so anyhow, that, that informs the work, I think first, this sort of just like the limitations of, 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 of what you can do. And then we also try to make those limitations yeah, um, be pertinent or, or uh, work in the film. And so the, the huge amount of drone cinema, CG, uh, cell phones, computers, there's like a screen, I think, in every scene in this film was, yes, both like a, a, a commentary on and, and just reflection of our reality, but also a sort of like, a way for us to basically insert a bunch of green screen or stock imagery that we bought later to sort of suture together and try to make sense of a movie that like the 16 millimeter stuff that we shot was not going to carry on its own. I think Daniel like counted the percentage or whatever of stock imagery that's in the movie and it's what, it's 10 or 20%? I don't 15 know. 15 or something? Yeah, I don't know. But anyway. It's a lot more than we originally scripted, I guess. It's really fun to to play with documentary, and just as a like a, as a you know because I can get a little abstract, but as a specific example, the um, our meme is not very good. I'm sorry, and a lot of the stuff is not dealt with in a very like you know rigorous way. So we're touching on a bunch of things, but in a sort of like it's quick, including memes, including memes, and um, but yeah, we wanted to sort of surround this Diamantino character with as many sort of like images and, and, and crises as we could. 
but one of them was the the Portugal exit, make Portugal great again, anti-refugee ad in the film, and that's basically, I think, almost entirely, except for Diamantino and his you know sword fighting, almost entirely comprised of stock imagery that. If it's not exactly used in the Brexit UKIP ads, is is one click away on the on the Giddy Image purchase thing or whatever. So yeah, working with stock imagery ended up being something that I think was very reflective of some of the stuff that we were dealing with. Yeah, like the Brexit video actually starts with like a stock image of a hospital that then they did CG to to make it blow up into euros. That then flow into Europe, and that was the inspiration for that. Let's open up to some questions. Okay, Gabriel and, and Daniel, are there any? Were there any social, economical, political, scientific issues that you said, "Oh, that's just too much for this film"? I don't know. I, I think we like we made a really long list, and we're like, "That's for the sequel. That's for the the trequel or whatever it's called. <laughs> that's for the franchise." <laughs> But I understand. I mean, we have a Baroque appetite, you know? And, and I don't know, we feel it seems a bit silly to say this, but I do think we are in a culture that's like, but I don't know. I don't know if that's the good answer to that, that like the culture reflects this film in some way, that like we are bombarded with a, a, such a, a disparate amount of topics to be. Uh, very angry about every day, you know? Um, well, I, I mean, I, lo we, I absolutely loved the bombardment of issues, but truly, did you guys argue over like a particular issue and, and decide, no, we can't put that one in? No, I, uh, or to be in a more simple like workshop explaining kind of thing, like a, or how we work in the workshop. It's like, I think we'll start with one idea, like this one actually started with celebrity adoption for whatever reason. And we were really interested in uh, uh, celebrity exotic adoptions like Madonna or Angelina Jolie and, and the sort of political uh, uh, weirdness of that, you know? Uh, and we tried to create a character that was sort of modeled on them in some way. And then it morphed into this Diamantino character, which is inspired on a soccer superstar from Portugal which is also a fiction, but uh, that he would, uh, ha he had, you know, the most famous Portuguese soccer superstar has not adopted a kid like, like Madonna or, or Angelina Jolie. But anyway, we started mixing these things. I don't know, it's very organic, like, uh, and also very intuitive. Before the film was about a bunch of other topics, but financing and writing took so long that um, we ended up rewriting the whole script. What? Uh, a month before shooting or two months before shooting? Yeah, like six weeks before yeah, shooting. Yeah, six weeks. Uh, and so it was closer to South Park, however embarrassing that might be or something, which is like the week-by-week -week topical uh, sort of table brainstorm of what's going on right now, and let's figure out a, a script to write about this. So in some ways, us having done so poorly at writing a script for four years that took us to get financing to do the movie, actually allowed us the liberty to the last two weeks be like, okay, we got to change everything. <laughs> it's going to be very topical. <laughs> so I don't know, but uh, so it's very organic in a way, like what the topics that end up in the film.
Hi there. My Hello. name's Nova, and I also make movies, so I just want to acknowledge um, everything that you put into this. Um, aesthetically, it was really exciting and, and juicy, and I, I really loved a lot of elements of it. Um, and I'm also, something that came up for me in watching it um, as a person with brown skin uh, is that I think um, Aisha's character um, at times maybe seemed like um, kind of a device used and not so much of a, a person, which felt a little bit concerning to me. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm holding a lot of different feelings about the work um, and acknowledge how great it is. But I'm, I'm wondering sort of what your process was in developing that character. And I also, I say that from a place of, um, you know, somewhere that I'm at uh, in my work right now personally, working on a, a documentary narrative hybrid about um, queer women of color and trans women of color and non-binary people of color. Um, and I identify as a black queer woman, but I'm not trans and I'm not non-binary and kind of looking at as I'm uh, working with folks in this community to develop these characters, um, just being aware of that and, and having an openness and being okay with things I don't know and asking questions. And so I'm wondering if, if pieces of writing that character were challenging and if there's anything you would do differently or what the experience was like. Sure, thanks for asking. Um, I think that's a concern of, of ours as well in the film. I think originally, I don't know if you would agree with this, Gabe, but originally when we were toying around with the different ideas of who would be sort of the center of the film, um, and we sort of listed off other inspirations, uh, at some point we decided pretty, um, uh, what's it called, concretely, that we wanted it to be a very like ensemble film and so, and, and that would be sort of the part of this, this sort of uh, fairy tale aspect. And so we cast, uh, and we had a really good time casting a number of different people with this idea of all the roles basically having to some degree equal weight. And then through the actual, you know, as Gabe was saying, pressure of, of shooting in just six weeks, and then I said, you know, we're trying to repair it with stock imagery in the end or whatever. It ended up being something that became much, much more um, uh, a film about one person, basically, and, and everything sort of swirling around him. And so the other characters started to become more diminished. And, like, the two twins are almost like uh, cartoon characters, you know, rather than the sort of fuller characters that we had developed. I think with Aisha's character, uh, who is very much supposed to be kind of like equal in, in weight in, in the film when we initially wrote it, became something that was a bit diminished by, yeah, a number of different problems, which was our own maybe inability to write to that character, the way that the character in scripting things did become somewhat more functional and all this kind of stuff, and then also working with the performer and, and, and the other performers. Carlotto really uh, is an amazing, generous actor, but um, then became someone who sort of stole the show in a way that also, I think, saved the movie. But, and I think one of the early references or, or references for us always was we were looking at these screwball uh, 
comedies of the 30s, like Bring a Baby as a, as a classic example. And we like them just because they're beautiful and amazing. But we had read some text by Stanley Cavell called um, In Pursuit of Happiness, where he discusses like how those films were revolutionary at the time because they, um, uh, the female characters that they had in them were so emboldened and they were the much more funny, dynamic characters. And so it was like a sort of like very emancipatory type of, of, of filmmaking. And, and that's really kind of true across the board for most of those um, screwballs. And so as we were thinking of this film, we were like, we want a Catherine Hepburn. And it's, it's to our own you know, fault and, 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 uh, and other elements in the film that we never really found one. Instead, we sort of found like the Cary Grant from, from uh, Bring It Baby. Um, and so that ended up being, yeah, uh, not necessarily what we intended, but we started working with his character more and more. And I think going to, I mean, I don't, I, sorry if I, to, I don't totally remember all the different elements of, of your question and, and, and what you shared, but, um, but I think that we, when we were thinking about the screwball comedies and the Cavell text and that sort of emancipatory potential of these comedies and these sort of like new characters and characters who have an ambiguous relationship to their body, to the, to the world, et cetera, to all these other pressures, we thought that Diamantino would kind of fit into that realm and that his love and Aisha's love, their, their partnership together was sort of this new family. Uh, and that's something that Gabriel and I discuss a bit sometimes, which is like not just new characters, new identities, but a sort of new very different family, but that was, I think, I don't know if that spoke to anything you were asking, let me know, but. Um, and the film definitely wasn't called Diamantino before, and that speaks a lot to Carlotto's talent, uh, the main actor, Diamantino, which is what Daniel was saying. He sort of stole the show in a certain way, and at certain points, actually quite um, intensely, like he would tell other actors how to act or whatever. And that, that says a lot about him or whatever as well. But um, I think the character that we wrote for Aisha is a really weird character. It's a character that's harder to reference. Like Carlotta had a really easy time. He had uh, Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi or some other reference that he's got. Who is this like queer secret service Portuguese uh, spy who's infiltrating a soccer? Like for, for Cleo, it's much the actress much harder for her to get in and this is something she talked to us about like who is this girl like what is she doing and like what does she want and whatever and we had these ideas of like she's like this like, brilliant it, I think our ideas were actually pulled mostly from uh, cinema in some way uh, stock characters but we were trying to mm, play with those stock characters in, in a different way and and it was just very hard. And I think the, the character ended up suffering and morphing into something else, something that I think is beautiful sometimes and sometimes very weak. But yeah, I think, I think when you're making a weird story that's with somehow topical, topical issues but very unrealistic characters at some time, sometimes it lands, sometimes it doesn't. I think Aisha is one of those examples of something that uh, is a little more flimsy, much more... 
Diamantino, for example, at script level, I think was much more flimsy than Carlotto managed to, to make him. Like, for example, there's that scene where he like kisses Aisha goodnight, and uh, we just had him like blowing her a kiss, and he does the whole like knocking the thing on the shoulders and the knees and then the head and then like kicking it to her. And that's something he just brought, and that's something that the actor and the way he's like uh, figuring out the character, there's some chemistry that somehow happens. Sometimes it's luck, sometimes it's writing, sometimes it's research. So I don't know what the answer is of like uh, in terms of suggestion for what you're saying. But in ours, I think, I think we wished Aisha was a little more grandiose, a little more, uh, what's it called? Mm. Out there. But I don't know. I think it's in every film. Like, it takes its course as well. And, and one, one, one character will dominate. And in this case, it definitely we even changed the title of the film to, to Diamantino because of, of what happened throughout the shoot and the edit. So, yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap up. But thank you both so much. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, Film at Lincoln Center presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. Film at Lincoln Center. Film lives here.